This is the Build Our Future podcast. We shape our buildings, and afterwards our buildings shape us. A window into the past, present, and future of the construction industry. We have still a lot of unlocked doors. Clarity with design, craftsmanship with the build. There's still a lot to find out and do and invent. Collaboration for our future. You know, I don't think it's the end of the invention. The Build Our Future podcast with Raul Faria. Let's build. Begins now. Welcome to the Build Our Future podcast. Today, I'm actually really excited to be talking about sustainability again, but from a little bit of a different perspective that a lot of us don't necessarily talk about. Today, I have Deanna Smikolas from Perkins and Will. But uh, before I get too much into how excited I am about it, Deanna, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Now, for our listeners, uh, can you share a little bit about yourself, your kind of journey to where you are, and kind of what got you interested in the sustainability side? Yeah, sure. So I went to school for interior design. I've always been somebody who is very interested in the built environment, and I wanted to make that my career. So I went to school for interior design, worked as an interior designer for a couple of years. My last project at the design firm that I was at was the first mass timber building built in Toronto for probably a hundred years. And it really got me thinking about building materials and sustainability and building out of wood. So how different is that? Sort of the sustainability impacts of it. But not even that, it's a lot of research went into trying to get as uh, many sustainable materials in that building as possible. And through that journey, I realized that sustainability, I only knew a very minimal amount of information on sustainability. And then I realized that there was so much more to it than I thought. So growing up, it's been one of those things that was ingrained in my mind from uh, my parents on recycling and where you buy your clothes from, the food you eat. So it's just one of those things that's always been at the forefront of my mind. And, and I wanted to focus on it and see how can I incorporate sustainability into, into my career? Um, and then I moved to JLL and there I was a strategic consultant, but focusing on specifically building operations and how do you essentially incorporate sustainability into building operations? And that's when um, indoor air quality came in, waste, water usage, energy usage, start understanding that it's not just how we build buildings, but it's also how they operate. But I was missing the design aspect of my career. So I wanted to get back into the architecture and design world. So that's where it led me to Perkins and Will. So now I've been at Perkins and Will for three and a half years now. And I focus solely on sustainability and health and well-being. And as I've grown in this specific role at Perkins and Will, so many opportunities have opened up. I've learned so much more about sustainability and the amazing thing about the industry that we're in is that it's constantly growing so you never know everything and you can never know too much so I feel like the more that I learn about it the more passionate I get about it because the more I realize that there's more to be done within our industry and we have a much greater responsibility than than we think. You know what? That's so true. But I loved your story about how you grew up and that was part of, you know, recycling here. You know, my journey was so different. Like I was born in India, grew up in the Middle East, immigrated here in the 90s. And I remember like I was, I think, 14 when I immigrated here. I remember the first time there was recycling day. My mom looked at me and she's like, 
what do you mean recycle? Like, cause over there, there was no thought about that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And then as I kind of got into university and started going through that, you know, my concept of sustainability I found was like looking back now, obviously hindsight being what it is, was so different. I thought energy star rated fridges was like a form of, you know, like that kind of stuff. And, yeah. you know, and, and as yeah, I kind yeah. of got into construction and started learning more and then just seeing some of the marketing of tech products that they try to shift over into quote unquote sustainability slash cost savings of the end user. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like that kind of becomes the prevailing thought is like, oh, I'm doing something because I have a Nest thermostat or you know what I mean? Like that's what, what like the general public yeah. kind of thinks. So, you know, I, I loved our last conversation when we were talking about our topic today, which is embodied carbon, because I felt like there's a lot of focus and thought about end result and goal kind of thing in terms of sustainability but not necessarily the embodied carbon side of things, right? And I know, I mean, I can tell from your voice as well, the passion that you're talking about <laughs> this stuff. You know, can you tell me and share with our listeners a little bit more about what embodied carbon is and where did that, I guess you could say that concept first started coming up from where people started thinking about, hey, this is something we could start way before the actual implementation side of things. Sure. So embodied carbon is essentially all the carbon is released into the atmosphere to make a product. So for example, you're constructing a building and it's made of concrete, steel, you have your envelope materials. So to make those materials, you're extracting resources. So there's carbon emitted from extracting the resources. There's carbon emitted from shipping those materials to the manufacturing plant. There's carbon emitted from manufacturing those materials, shipping it to site. So that's all pretty much the product stage of embodied carbon. So by the time the building is built, there is X amount of carbon that has been emitted into the air. And so that is embodied within the building. From day one of operations, most of the carbon is now operational carbon. So it's all the carbon to essentially run the building. There is still carbon associated with having to repair materials, maintain materials, the destruction of the building. But anything considered embodied is really to get the building to where it is. So why it's such an important thing is because we're moving towards a very energy efficient building process where you're constructing buildings that could be net zero energy, that could include PV panels, that could be islandable. So it's completely off the grid. But what people, I guess how it's going in the industry is that the more efficient your building becomes, the lower the operational carbon and the greater the embodied carbon is in that entire carbon pie. And globally, 11% of all the carbon emitted in the world has to do with buildings and materials. So we have this huge responsibility to reduce the carbon associated with our building materials because it does contribute so much globally. And we are in a climate crisis right now. So it's one of those things that we have the opportunity to make changes. Why don't we make changes? So a couple of years ago, me and my colleagues, Dana, decided we're going to start our first life cycle assessment, which is an assessment that takes into consideration carbon associated with the building along with other impact categories. And we're like, let's figure out how to do this, the most contributing materials, how we can start implementing reductions and it's just been one of those processes where we started doing it on one building and then on a couple more buildings 
and then we figured out how to make some reductions here and then on the next building we learned how to make another reduction here so we've really refined our processes and figured out how to make reductions in certain areas and how to also communicate that to our consultants because it's not just the architectural team it's a team effort when you're building a building so yeah, and I feel like the more that I've learned about it and the more that we've done at Perkins and Well, the more passionate I become about it because it's one of those things when you learn more, you realize that you don't actually know a whole lot, that there's so much more to know. Yeah. So with every project, we learn something and then we get to implement that on the next project. So it's uh, very exciting. I mean, I'm curious because it sounds like it's, I mean, back in the, what am I going to say, early 2000s, I remember LEED was early 2000s, maybe maybe mid to late 2000s, LEED was all the rage, you know, LEED standards. And I think there was a portion of that that did involve what you were talking about in terms of what this embodied carbon was. Because I remember working on a couple of projects where we had to figure out, okay, where's the material coming from? What's the radius? And it, it all is based on rating because of air pollution. I mean, they didn't say carbon at that time. They were just talking about pollution. So is this like the next kind of evolution, you know, as we went through the lead kind of process and say, you know what, there's a way we can refine this a little bit more and really get to a little bit more of the specifics on how we can, I guess, reduce stuff instead of it being more generic, shall we say? Yeah, I think with the version two that like lead version 2009, I haven't worked on version prior to that, but with version 2009, the material focus was recycled content, regional content, and material reuse. Rarely were projects able to reuse materials because a lot of them typically were new builds, but using materials with high recycled content generally means that you're not extracting new resources. So the embodied carbon of those materials tends to be lower, as well as using materials that are regional, they travel less of a distance to get to your project. So that also helps with carbon. I think with the new version, version four and version 4.1, embodied carbon, it contributes to the overall certification. I think because we've gotten so good at sourcing materials that have a high recycled content, a lot of material manufacturers know that this thing that's really important so like you can rarely do you find a, a building material now that doesn't incorporate some kind of recycled content unless it absolutely has to be um, made up of newly extracted materials but generally you can find like whether it's gypsum board whether it's concrete steel steel has like one of the highest recycled content if you source it properly and so i feel like once you got into that stage and you're like, this is an easy task that we can, we can definitely guarantee a certain percentage on every project, then the next step is looking at carbon. So it's, I think it's evolved in order to address this because with each improvement on the certification system, you're able to meet certain baselines. And then once you meet that baseline, it becomes second nature, right? So it's like, how do you progress from there? So like when you talk about these certification systems, do you guys like reach out to manufacturers, let's say of, you know, sheetrock, drywall, like whatever, you know, like that kind of stuff to, to try to figure out or come up with some kind of baseline for what I guess their manufactured carbon output might be for, let's just say, you know, a five eighth inch type X, you know, fire rated drywall. And so like, do you guys kind of go to that extent as well in terms of that? It must be pretty challenging with the number of manufacturers out there, right? Yeah. Well, it's an interesting question because at the beginning, 
when I first started Perkins and Will three and a half years ago, our first project for lead version four, we were actually looking at materials from a greater lens was our own Perkins and Will office. And so one of the credits in lead that we were targeting was um, the environmental product declarations. And if you don't know what that is, it's essentially uh, a transparency document that outlines the entire environmental footprint of that product. And it was nearly impossible to find 20 products of all the products we're using on our project that had EPDs. Fast forward three and a half years later, it's almost guaranteed that you can find the minimum 20 products. So it's amazing the progress that this industry has made. So, I mean, we're only just starting to reach out to manufacturers asking for their carbon footprint. We first started looking at structure of a building because that has the greatest impact. So our first thing was how do we reduce the carbon associated with concrete? So working with Concrete Ontario, working with our structural engineers, with we even reached out to, to some suppliers to ask for their opinions. We were able to identify generally what the carbon associated with each concrete mix would be. We actually just spoke, we had like a bit of a brainstorming session this week with Concrete Ontario and one of our structural engineers to figure out how to refine our specifications to make it so that every supplier is able to calculate their own global warming potential, which is carbon, um, as well as report it properly. So we're getting the conversations going with people, which is really exciting. And also hearing the feedback from suppliers saying that this is amazing that uh, we're finally being asked this kind of information on projects. So we've been doing that. We've reached out to steel manufacturers and associations to see, you know, what, how do we manipulate our specifications so that we can guarantee a certain, well, maybe not guarantee, but lower on body carbon. So ensuring that certain steel shapes are made from electric arc furnaces instead of basic oxygen furnaces. And electric arc furnaces have the capability of using renewable energy to disconnect from natural gas because it's electric. So there's certain things that we're working on specifically with the structure. But once we've started implementing those reductions, we're like, okay, what's next? So next we looked at the building facade. And those are things that we have a little bit more leeway on because it's not a performance spec, it's more of a design choice. So what we would do is we'd work with our architecture team and say, you know, what are the top three materials that you're looking at for your project? And we would assess the embodied carbon on each of those materials. And then once the design team selected the material, a lot of the time embodied carbon would play into their material decisions along with obviously performance and design. But when they would select their material, then we'd start looking at manufacturers to see, is there a manufacturer that we can select that has an even greater embodied carbon reduction, at least being able to identify a couple options for a design team. Now what we're doing is we're starting to go into the interior spaces because we feel like we've gotten like our feet wet in the architectural side of things and we have really good progress in that area and now we need to start engaging our interiors teams on how do we reduce embodied carbon with interior spaces. So we've actually reached out to furniture manufacturers, all the furniture manufacturers we work with and start asking them, can you please provide your environmental product declarations for everyone that you have? And generally we would get like one to 10 EPDs. And so that was a bit of an 
eye-opener because it really made us understand that there's certain parts of our industry that maybe are ahead of other parts. So for example, carpet tile within uh, for interior projects, they, they're generally so much further ahead in terms of sustainability because they have so little ingredients that go into a product. Meanwhile, furniture has so many different components and they're changing all the time. So it's so much harder to track the embodied carbon associated with that. So just being able to start these conversations has been a really great first step where we're able to make reductions and compare manufacturers and compare products. That's like, that's what we're trying to do on all our projects now, but definitely starting those conversations has been a vital part and at least getting people aware so that they know that we're looking for this. Well, you know, I'm uh, what piques my interest is understanding other people would call it the back end side of things for me, you know, being a contractor as my day job. I look at that as like the pre-construction design phase kind of thing. I mean, once you start figuring this out and started selecting some of these products, like, is there a role that a contractor would play in the execution of this? I mean, aside from the usual shop drawing, submittal logs, you know, like that kind of stuff, like, is there a role that they play? Are you picky about, you know, who you invite? I'm just curious because you know, it's one thing to have the the specifications all sorted out, which is the heavy lifting that you guys are doing. But then there's that execution side of things as well, right? So how do those kind of interplay with each other? Or do they have that much of a role? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because we've submitted our first project where our specs actually include embodied carbon. And so it hasn't gone out to tender yet or it has gone out to tender um, and we're receiving feedback, but we haven't had conversations with our contractors yet about it. We don't know exactly how this is going to play out. We suspect there will be a little bit of pushback, maybe a little bit of confusion on like what to provide, uh, what to include in submittals, but we haven't gotten through an entire construction process where we're asking for embodied carbon information. So the way that I see this playing out is having some kind of educational session with our contractors, letting them know that maybe we focus on these top five materials and being able to get that embodied carbon information for these materials. I mean, just having an environmental product declaration included in submittals helps us because it does include embodied carbon within it. So that's a plus when contractors know but I think education is going to be probably the most vital component of us working with contractors in this reduction in embodied carbon. So yeah, I, we haven't seen it through fully yet. But I'm sure with time, it'll be more of like, uh, you know, like any standards always come up because of stuff that's happened and it kind of builds from there because, you know, us as contractors, you know, sometimes what we are hamstrung with is not fully grasping and understanding not just you know the drawings and interpretation of the drawings into this 3d space kind of thing that we're going to build out but understanding the why behind things because you know like they say for even um, you know employees team members anything that people get passionate about if they don't understand the why then there's not going to be that added focus on it right so i think you're right i think it's just that added time of education and awareness uh, that this is important. This is just as vital of a role as the execution and, you know, quality of the finished product, shall we say, uh, that we want to 
streamline this and, and potentially have a partnership and saying, okay, how can we improve this? How can we not? So, you know, like you said, if you are going out to tender to multiple contractors, everyone's kind of aware of what is actually needed and, and, and required. And I think that's where LEED did a good job. Like they had standards in place. But again, that also would have started from somewhere in, in communication with contractors originally, and they kind of built it up. Okay, we can do this. Okay, we can do this. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think that lead has been a great starting point because it exposed all the requirements of a building in terms of sustainability. It's really gotten people on board understanding, you know, what exactly is post and pre-consumer cycle content, what's considered local. Like it's really engaged the contractor in the conversation of sustainability. I think that this is the next step and there's going to be that just like implementing anything new, there's going to be that period of all parties not really knowing exactly what the best process is. So it's going to be some time before I think everyone's figured out, like, this is how you get a low embodied carbon building, and this is how you see it through, and this is how you document it. So it's going to be, it's going to be a process and it's going to take some time, but like anything, it's a team effort. And if if we're able to have these conversations early and we have them now, then maybe right. on the next project, it becomes easier Then the next project, it becomes easier. So, you know, that's really interesting what you were saying. You know, nowadays it seems to be a lot of rage with, you know, the reuse and repurposing of materials, right? Like do, do you guys do like life cycle assessments on the materials on potentially reusing these products? Cause obviously that would have an impact on embodied carbon, right? I mean, I've seen companies in Vancouver now, they specialize in like the deconstruction, you know, in phases so they can kind of reuse brick, reuse this, this. does that kind of play a role in, in embodied carbon as well? It depends on the project. Okay. Most of our projects that specifically I'm working on are complete new build. There are a few projects where we're adding an addition onto the building, but rarely are we um, just renovating uh, a space. But we are doing one project where we're completely getting the whole building. So we're keeping the structure, which is amazing because we ran a life cycle assessment on it. And I can't remember the exact amount of carbon that we're saving from keeping the structure, but it's an insane amount. So just understanding that by reusing the structure for this one project, like that, we could have easily contributed that much carbon into the atmosphere if we were to demolish that building and build new. So yeah. there are some instances where we are able to maintain something for the project and reduce carbon, but where this concept really comes into play is we're, we're talking a lot with furniture manufacturers as well as some of our clients, or at least we're starting to, on the idea of reused furniture. We've had some conversations with take-back program companies that essentially, re, like, they'll take back furniture, reuse it for a different project or donate it. And the amount of waste that goes into the landfill having to do with Furniture can be astronomical. So I, and I think a lot of manufacturers are now starting to partner with these kinds of companies because they realize like an interior space could be anywhere from five to 10 years. And then once you've reached a certain point, you move spaces or your leases up. So you, you, you build a new office somewhere. And then what do you do with all of that old furniture? Right. So 
we're starting to have conversations about is there are there things that we can reuse when clients are moving to a new space an easy one tends to be task chairs i know that one of our projects that we're just finalizing they carried over almost all their task chairs to the new space and their new space is massive so they've saved not even not a lot not even just money but they've saved a lot of carbon um, from not purchasing new furniture so those are like that's one area where we're really trying to make a change i'm not sure how it's going to play out i think that a lot of clients may have this perception of you know reuse is that going to look old is that going to dated whatever yeah yeah, you want yeah. a new space, you want things that, that look new. But I don't know, it's just starting the conversation and seeing how people react to it. And if we can start somewhere small, like bringing over all your task chairs, because they still look brand new, and you can replace them easily because that exact chair is still in the market 20 years later. Being able to start somewhere to bring people on board, and then, you know, maybe you, you implement I don't know, demountable partitions so that they're accustomed to this idea of, you know, when you're done with a space, you can take it elsewhere or you can reuse something elsewhere. So I think it's different architecturally and for interior spaces, but I think in general, the idea of reuse is ultimately where we want to be because that contributes to the circular economy. But you got to start small because I think a lot of people resist it. So yeah. Yeah, but you know, I'm glad you mentioned the start the conversation small. Like, I mean, when clients come to you guys to design a space, like is your first instinct to have that conversation or do they come to you because they know you're a specialist in this and they have a passion for it as well? Because sustainability, while it's growing into, I guess you could say a little bit more quote unquote mainstream kind of thing and people are looking for ways to implement it. I think the stuff you're talking about, people really need to have a passion for it, right? So how do you, engage in that conversation initially when 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 you're starting that conversation of design mm-hmm. so we get both situations a lot of the times our clients come to us because they know that we specialize in sustainability so they know what they're getting and a lot of them definitely have a passion for sustainability as well and then there's also times where a client doesn't even know that they want a low and body carbon building until we teach them about it. And then as soon as we have these sustainability presentations with our clients, I feel like we instill this desire to do something because a lot of the times, I don't think people realize that when you're building an entirely new building like that, that's a huge contribution that you're making to not even just the community, but environmentally. And yeah, you can get like high recycled content, you can get local materials. But when it comes to embodied carbon, a lot of a lot of clients, this is kind of their first time hearing about it. And when we talk about it, I think it engages them and instills this passion within them as well, because they realize, you know, I'm building a community center and this is something that we can implement low embodied carbon materials on and like how much can we reduce our carbon by? So I feel like when when they don't know that they want this, we make them realize that they that they want this. <laughs> yeah. Which is which is great because that means that we're aligned with our clients at all times. So whether clients come to us because they want a sustainable building or whether they come to us and then after realize that they can make their building sustainable, either 
either path is amazing um, because it just means that we're making the case so well that it convinces people. And when it comes to things like sustainability, I think it's so important to have a strong enough argument for it that it changes people's opinions about it. You can't force sustainability onto people and onto our clients, but if you can make them care about it, then that means that it's going to be cared about. I mean, like, so curious, like in the coming years and stuff, obviously you said you're learning as you go kind of thing. Where, where do you think we are going with this, at least in the short term? Like, where would you like to see the industry, maybe regulations kind of evolve as we, I know that's a loaded question when I said regulations, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, where would you like yeah. to see it? Obviously, like, you know, month by month, uh, everything changes, right? Like new ideas, yeah. new concepts come up. But where do you see it tracking? Where, where, where would you like to see us go um, as far as something like this is concerned? I would, I would love to see policies in place. I think that having some kind of governmental policy on, let's just say, like, carbon limits on how much your building is allowed to contribute. I think that would really drive the message. I also don't think that we should be waiting for people to make a policy about it. So I think it's kind of like chicken and egg situation where it's like, do we wait for someone to ask us or we just go ahead and do it? And then that in turn will make people regulate it. It's almost like car emissions, right? I think the U.S. like a while ago mandated everything get reduced and so on and so forth. And I think it got lifted, but they're not going back. So maybe something, you know what I mean? Something like that. Something has to get the ball rolling, shall we say, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. I would love to see, I would love to see manufacturers really make changes. Um, speaking with some manufacturers or even just seeing products come up sometimes on LinkedIn where people are talking about like, oh, this is carbon neutral or carbon negative. And it's not necessarily greenwashing, but to have something be carbon neutral at this point in time, unless it's carbon sequestering, which there are materials that do that, generally you're buying carbon offsets. So you're offsetting the remaining carbon. And although we absolutely need that industry and we need to be contributing to it because they do, carbon offsets do contribute to amazing um, initiatives, I would love to see people make the reduction first. So are we using better materials? Are we recycling more materials? Are we contributing to the circular economy first? And then at the end of all that, what is the leftover carbon? And then can we offset that? So I think it's going in that direction. And I've seen a lot of positive movements in terms of reducing carbon and manufacturers really making the effort. But I think we're still at the beginning stages of that. And it will take some time for all manufacturers to get on board. Like I know like every manufacturer now has some kind of sustainability reporting or like everyone has some kind of sustainability policy that took a long time to get there. And I think that now that everyone's met that kind of baseline it's like what's the next thing that we can get people to strive towards and that's really going to be coming from demands from the architecture and design industry so yeah well the one thing I, I guess that I would say is like that as a reason to be a little excited I mean construction in general we're like slow to adapt slow to evolve shall we say you know we tend to always like cling on to the old ways that worked right in the past but you know, if you just looked at, you know, maybe four or five years ago, even 
compared to now, I know you are mentioning you see a lot more products that are carbon neutral. I see a lot of them on there now too, but four or five years ago, you never saw that at all. So now seeing so many more, maybe what you're talking about is like that next step, because now the carbon neutrals become like the standard. So, which is nice, which is almost the standard, shall we say. So, you know, I think the next step will be that. And I see it actually going a lot quicker. And there are a lot of people that are doing a lot of things. I don't know if I mentioned to you, like little things like I recorded an episode last year with a gentleman from Mumbai who recycles air pollution and makes tiles out of them. And like stuff like that, I would have never, well, first of all, when I heard that, I didn't even think it was possible, but then, yeah. <laughs> but even like, I would have never thought that that would be something that people would be so passionate about and actually spend the time to, you know, with the R and D and get a, and he got a few companies together to work on that. Right. So I, I think it is kind of getting to a point where uh, it's like the tech industry, right? Like the curve. So as we're going up, I think you're going to see it speed up. It it never speeds up to the speed that we want it to. We yeah. want it to, unfortunately. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I do think we're going in in a in a pretty awesome direction, shall we say? Right. So. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I think that there's been an insane amount of progress that's happened in the past couple of years. So whether that's considered fast or slow, I don't know. But like I was saying before, even with EPDs. Like we could barely find them when I first started as a sustainability advisor and now they're everywhere. So like the next step in something like that would be how do we streamline the process so that these values are more accurate? Like are people just using general industry average values for, you know, how much carbon would be released to extract this material or is it specific to that location and that plant, you know? So I think accuracy is going to become the next step for a lot of, a lot of manufacturers. So yeah. As opposed to generalizations, right? Yeah. I'm going to take this number from here because that's been established this number from here and put it together for mine. Right? Yeah. And I don't know if that's what people are doing necessarily, but even just talking with some concrete suppliers, like for example, there's an industry average EPD for concrete mixes in Canada. And it's an industry average and it's across all provinces. So is that specific to Ontario? No. Is Ontario doing better or worse than the industry average? We don't know because it's so dependent on our grid, on manufacturing processes within Ontario. So there's, there's certain things that I think are going to start becoming a lot more refined and think that is because people are starting to demand it. So yeah, I th- we're moving in the right direction, whether we're moving there quicker or slower. I'm not, I'm not too sure, but um, <laughs> you know, we always want things yesterday. So. Yeah. And you know, as, as, as one of the guy, I mean, he's, he's kind of like a mentor of mine. He always says, you know, Raul, like progress, not perfection. Cause perfection, you always, always look for progress. Cause if you get to that perfection, that means you're done. Cause you so you always want to look that you're continuously evolving, con- continuously progressing to whichever direction you want to go. And I love that little sort of, I like that. Right. Yeah. So because it, it always keeps some, something to strive for, because like you said, everything's changing uh, by the day, by the month kind of thing. Right. So, well, this has been this has been awesome. Yeah. And I, I'd love uh, I'd love hearing it. And, uh, you know, I'd love to see where this is going. And I'd be curious to keep in touch to see how maybe after that project, how the contractors role played played a yeah. role in, in the execution of that embodied carbon vision as well. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm really excited to see the kind of questions we're going to get. I know that even with the way that we work with our structural engineer to write the specs, 
for that project. We've been getting a ton of questions about it. You know, how do we calculate this? And what are you looking for as a deliverable? And so it's going to be one of those things that I think with every project, we're going to find something else that can be tweaked or refined to make the next project easier. So if you want my advice, like, you know, the first page, which is the instruction to bidders, the first line should be, um, uh, don't make any assumptions. No question is stupid. Just because, you know, everything is new, yeah, right? Because sometimes, sometimes, you know, my site super might feel weird asking a question if he doesn't understand. You know what I mean? Because they're supposed to know, right? So I think <laughs> that should be at the top. If you have a question, ask. Yeah. And I, sometimes I think that we assume that people know. And like you said, no question is stupid. When I first started, I had a million and one questions uh, for my manager. And because I'm not afraid to ask questions, uh, I learned really quickly. And even for our project, um, our own office in Toronto, it hit a point where our contractors um, hired someone specifically to help with the lead documentation because it's this very is involved. Every yeah. yeah, and it was all of our first lead version four project. So I think all of us were trying to figure out how to get this done properly. And so they hired they hired somebody to help me with it and he was reaching out to me all the time and it was but it was amazing because the more questions he asked the more i also learned because if you don't know like and the more you can refine the process too right yeah yeah and so now we've gotten to a point where um like things are just second nature to us but you know not everybody knows what i know um and that's that's because I specialize in I specialize in it and I do it every day and I can't expect everybody to have the same level of understanding. And so, like you said, no no question stupid, especially when this is something that's so new to everybody and implementing the body carbon reduction is literally at the forefront. So the more they ask us, the more that we also learn in return. Awesome. Well, that's a great segue. I mean, like if people did have these dumb questions, where can they find you? Where can they reach out to you? <laughs> um, they can reach out to me on LinkedIn. I don't have much social media, but LinkedIn, I am usually active on and I check it almost every day. So they can get my name probably from the... Yeah, we'll, we'll have it in the description, the website and stuff. But yeah, you can find them on LinkedIn. And if you wanted to know more about Perkins and Will, They've got a beautiful website with all of their fun work. So, but definitely reach out to Deanna if you have any questions, not just about embodied carbon, even though that's her passion at the moment. I'm sure she knows a lot more about sustainability just in general. And I, I welcome all challenges, so. <laughs> be careful, me. be careful what you ask for is what I'll, true. What I'll say. <laughs> Very but true. no, thank you so much, Deanna, for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you. This was a lot of fun.